Hello and welcome to Influencers Cafe. Today I'm with Mara Klemmick, who is the wife of Stephen Klemmick, who I had on a few weeks ago. How are you doing today, ma'am? Very well, thank you, Nikos. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, that's a very big, wide question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Where do you want me to start? I mean, always two. Um, tell me a bit about myself. Well, I obviously I'm married to Stephen. That's part of my identity. Um, the other part of my identity is um, I am 58 years old, almost. Don't look it. Oh, thank you. Oh, you'll go far. <laughs> <laughs> no, I still think I'm 25, which does lead to sort of various issues at times. Um, I am basically, um, I work with Stephen. Stephen and I um, co-authored a book recently, uh, Above the Line, which I think he spoke about. And we invented the Heart Styles Indicator together, which is a, um, a way of people hopefully finding out a little bit more about themselves. Um, and prior to all of that, my background is actually I'm a psychologist and I'm a clinical psychologist and also a neuropsychologist. So what's the difference between <laughs> psychology and psychiatry? Oh, that's a good question. Well, uh, I think the basic difference is that psychiatry, you actually need to go to medical school. So it's a very medically based um, model. Um, you can also dispense um, drugs, basically, medication, um, as a doctor would, because basically you become a doctor first and then you go on as a specialty, just like you would specialise as a neurologist or an orthopaedic surgeon. Right. Your specialty would be psychiatry and you would continue on for quite a number of years specialising in that area. So all of those people would be, have gone through the same medical training and then they reach a level where they then specialise in a specialty, which... In so that you trained as a doctor? I started medicine um, yeah. because I wanted to become a psychiatrist, but a couple of years into it, I realised that psychiatry actually wasn't for me. Okay. And this also brings us to the next part of your question, what's the difference? The, thera the therapeutic process is, is quite different in psychiatry versus psychology. Psychology, uh, I'll probably get stabbed by a number of psychiatrists, the friends of mine, but I, I think that psychology has a wider base in terms of its choices for therapeutic process. So you can sort of develop your own menu, if you like, um, and have, a, I guess, a wider breadth in terms of how what suits you, in terms of how you then work with people. The other main issue is, or main element of difference, is um, that as a psychologist, you can't actually prescribe medicine. Right. I see. Okay, and so what was it about psychology that you found more interesting than psychiatry? Um, well, <laughs> so I was one of these people that I knew what I wanted to do when I was 11. And I, I loved people. I loved analysing people. I used to do little experiments on trains and things. <laughs> I feel nervous now. <laughs> Just be careful how you're drinking that because you can tell a great deal by how you hold <laughs> oh, that cup. No, no I'm joking. Um, yeah, people get freaked out when they find out what I do at dinner parties. And I usually do a very below the line sarcastic comment like that to freak them out. Uh, which is very naughty. Um, so what did I... Yeah, I used to do little experiments. So I was always interested in, in people. And psychology, um, I think it... it, it I, well, I preferred... I didn't believe that everything or most things need to be medicated. 
So I think that was my, as a young person, I think that was part of my decision-making process at the time. And I found it, the therapeutic processes available in those days, which was a while ago, um, were quite narrow. And I felt that there was a, a more of a breadth in psychology that would allow me to feel a lot more freedom to be able to help people in, in, in different ways of, uh, with different processes. So is the psychiatry feel we're prescribing these medicines, is it a very accurate science or is there still a lot of greyness in terms of results for you know drugs acting on the brain? Oh, well, I don't think that's just psychiatry, Nikos. I think, I think we... I, I'm really thrilled to be living, you know, at 58 to see the way medical technology is moving so quickly. There are things that, um, in whether it's you know medicating for depression or um, or not medicating for depression, I, I think we're learning so much more about the brain that allows us to be more accurate in how we treat people when there's something that's happening um, that's impairing their thought processes or their personality etc so I don't think it's a psychiatry issue versus a psychology issue it's it's about how much are we learning um, about the the human brain and our technology is moving so quickly that you know I get so excited in being able to see these days that neuroscience has become a lot more uh, well known you know most people know about neuroscience whereas I started you know in the dare I say it in the 80s when we were training, no one knew anything unless you actually went to medical school about um, neuroscience. Even psychologists didn't necessarily know that unless they took that discipline. Did you know that I wished to work in the neuroscience laboratory? No, I did. Did a know summer that. project, yeah. Really? Yeah. What did you graduate with? Um, well, I graduated by the time I finished. I graduated with a master's of a clinical master's in abnormal psychology, and then a, a master of science in um, clinical neuropsychology, and went to work as a a neuropsychologist in Australia, which um, was wonderful in the hospital system, which is great because in those days, um, probably as there are now, particularly in Australia, um, neuropsychologists are really run off their feet in terms of working either in the acute areas uh, for assessments for people who present with any kind of uh, neurological, suspected neurological, psychiatric, neuropsychiatric, all sorts of different things. Um, that have happened to the brain and, and we basically go in with the neurologist and, and assess the finesse around what is actually happening in parts of the brain and also then what does that look like for the individual as, you know, in their normal life. There's a neurologist somebody that scans them in an MRI or something like that? Uh, we look at MRI scans but we have our own tests that accompany the MRI scans or the CT scans. And these tests are actually incredibly discreet, so they can sort of isolate different uh, veins, different parts of the brain, that if there's a, an occlusion or a blockage in a certain area, when, then what does that look like in, in that person's um, behaviour or thinking? So um, we work very closely with neurology and neurosurgery. So it's great because I, I had a wonderful career. I, I, because I also was a clinical psychologist, I used to do trauma work on Fridays and Saturdays. I absolutely loved it at the um, accident and emergency. Um, you were t- t- testing for concussions? and No, no, no. I was there, count- was counselling. Right. Trauma counselling. So people that came in with all sorts of things, gunshot wounds, um, the people that accompanied them. We had all sorts of things, trauma, car accidents, death, you know. So whatever there was, um, I you know you were on rotation to um, to work with 
anything really. So you never knew what was happening, what was going to happen. It was incredibly busy and I absolutely loved it. I had an incredible passion for it. I think I got paid my first job um, with all of those degrees and, and the background. <laughs> I think I got paid $18,000 Australian for working 12-hour days. Um, I used to work extra hours and not get paid for it. And I did that for the first three years and I absolutely loved it. <laughs> wow. It wasn't for the money. <laughs> Yes, I was a very poor neuropsychologist, but a very happy one. So what's, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get, there's a lot of words that maybe people don't really understand. What's a, what's a neurologist again? So a neurologist is a, a doctor who specialises in the neuroanatomy of the brain, all the workings and neurology of the brain. Right. And, what did, and he, the well, what, did, what did he do to assist you in your work? Um, I think if you talk to neurologists, they'd probably say that they, I assisted them. They didn't assist me. There's right. always a bit of a fight between neurologists and neuropsychs, um, in a good way. So they would be the primary doctor. So someone comes in and has a, um, presents with a stroke, for instance, or a car accident, and they've had some kind of brain injury or suspected brain injury. Mm-hmm. The neurologist does their types of tests, which they've got, and then they probably would also be looking at their, the person's MRI or CT or whatever they, they've scanned mm-hmm. them with. Um, they would then have a look and say, okay, we can see there's damage here or there isn't damage there. Generally, they call the neuropsychologist in because we would then do some other tests that would then uh, probably either vindicate or sometimes disagree with, but not very often, um, what the neurologist had found. And together, we would then uh, work with the family to talk them through, this is what's happened. This is what you can expect for the prognosis this is how it's going to look, this is the therapeutic um, help that you're going to get, the rehab. Um, yeah, so they work very very closely in conjunction together. Though I've noticed that I think in the UK there's less of that. Um, I think I was really, really fortunate working in Australia because there's, you, you get to learn an enormous amount and you're treated as a the same level as a specialist. So um, whereas here I think at the, a lot of people in neuropsychs, I might be... Maybe some of your listeners could help me with that one, being new to the UK. But it seems to me that a lot of neuropsychologists are around in, are around in research rather than clinical work, um, such as what I was exposed to for 12 years. Um, and I think the States are similar to Australia too, where you work at a, a specialist level as a neuropsychologist mm-hmm. in the hospital system. Then I went into private practice as well. This is a bit that's really interesting to me. So what, what did you do after that first part of your career? Um, I, yeah, so I was in um, my dream job for probably two or three years and there was an older fellow who was, um, who was in sort of towards his retirement who was uh, a forensic neuropsychologist and in those days he was the only one in Australia. They had two forensic psychiatrists that worked with all the um, serious levels of um, criminal work, so all of the murder trials in, in Australia. He put, took me under his wing and as he was retiring, he ended up giving me a lot of his work and trained me in forensics, forensic assessment. So yeah, it was incredible privilege and I really took to it. I absolutely loved it um, and did that for 18 years. So I ended up taking over from him. Um, I ended up giving my work to someone else as I was getting <laughs> old and cranky and uh, a bit more disillusioned, I think, and tired. Um, 
well, that's my joke. Actually, what, what was really happening is I went into the corporate world as well and the corporate world and getting subpoenaed into court cases didn't really work. So I ended up having to um, draw back from that and you have to make choices in life sometimes, don't you? And I'd had 18 fantastic years of doing that um, and started to pull back on the forensic work. But I got to meet, you know, a lot of very interesting people shall we say. Yeah, so um, what does the word subpoena mean? My English isn't the strongest part of my... Sorry. Um, subpoena is a really funny word. I think it must be Latin or something like that. It basically means when you... Um, uh, it's a legal requirement. Probably all the lawyers listening should be able to write into us and, and correct me <laughs> here. But it's basically a legal requirement from the court to appear in a court case. So you, you can actually have a job where the court can require you to do certain things. If you didn't have that job qualification, you couldn't be subpoenaed. But it's... No, I think you can be subpoenaed. You could be subpoenaed as a witness. Right. So they usually, the police uh, or the Department of Public Prosecutions usually then um, subpoena someone to come. It basically means you've got a legal requirement to turn up. So you can't, you know, see someone coming and you think they've got a subpoena and duck out the other way. Yeah. If they see you do that, they'll chase you to hand it to you. Once they physically hand it to you, so you, you need to appear. So was your role as an expert witness somebody that basically to verify the mental state of the yeah. defendants? So. Yeah. So I generally worked for prosecution. Um, I did a few defences over the years, but not many. Um, a couple of them I found against, so they're a little bit upset about that, of course, because they couldn't use me for their case. Um, so I'm probably going to be very controversial by saying this, so all of those legal people that are listening, uh, give me a bit of grace. But it's it's a game, and it's a very serious game, and people take that very seriously. But basically, you, as the either the defence lawyer or the prosecuting lawyer... You need to find people that support your argument. Mm -hmm. So I tended to work for prosecution. I was pretty much well known for that. And that meant that I would go in and um, assess the person. And my brief was generally, does this person have a psychiatric issue? Do they have brain damage to account for what they did? Mm -hmm. And I would then assess someone. Sometimes it could take... A number of days to do it because you have to have some timeouts and you know people are not you can imagine sometimes they're not they're not exactly thrilled to be doing that so <laughs> they're not exactly yeah sure I'll just do 17 tests for you right now Mara no problem oh, this is so not, fascinating for me you know, I, I, I have a sort of phys, I have a biophysics background and I guess my mm. first love was was science but then I, I like for whatever reason, I just wanted the money. <laughs> wanted to become a web developer. <laughs> it's not very noble, isn't it? I mean, you, you have these sort of noble ideas at school, like, oh, I'm a scientist, and then you have to pay the bills and stuff. I like, I just become a web developer. <laughs> <laughs> it's not not noble. It's just a different different way of life, isn't it? That's all. We all make choices. Um, yeah, so I took... Yeah, I used to do the assessments. I then wrote a very, very lengthy report. And then you would be presented in court and you would be put in the witness stand and cross-examined to present your findings. Okay, so yeah, I did something naughty, right? And I'm pretending I'm pretending that I'm not uh, mentally oh, yeah. responsible for my actions. Mm -hmm. what, what would be a typical 
session. Uh, yeah, so that's um, called malingering. And yeah, that is always a really difficult a difficult thing to do. We do have, there are, um, for all those psychologists and psychiatrists around, everyone would know that there are quite a number of scales that you can use, uh, tests, assessments, um, to help mitigate that and to have a look at whether someone's actually faking it. Yeah. Um, it's pretty hard to fake a neuropsych assessment because what hap- one of the things I absolutely love about neuropsychology is it's, so, it's incredibly investigative. So it's like the logic of if A, then B, if B, then C, but it can't also be D. Right. Right. So if you're malingering... Malingering means um, faking, faking it. Faking it, okay. And you're trying to convince me that I'm not, that you're not in your in your, you know, compass mentis. You're not you're not in your right mind, so that you then can mitigate your sentence, which is really what people try to do. Mitigate my sentence. Yeah, they're trying to um, get less of a sentence. Um, say that they didn't that, that it wasn't as uh, serious as what it was. There was a reason for it. So they're, right, they're trying right. to not get a life sentence. They're trying to get something less than that. They're, they're trying to get off. You know, they're trying to do all sorts of things. So people will try to fake their way through. But it's very difficult trying to fake a neuropsycholo- neuropsychological assessment because you, for instance, as this the person, would have very little idea about what <laughs> a brain pattern, a pattern of results should or shouldn't look like. So you, are you doing a test and there's, there's instrumentation at the same time and connected to their head and stuff? No, like no, that? no. Um, probably the easiest way to put it, it's not actually accurate, but it's, it's a paper and pencil test. There are different types of tests that you use that look at all these specific parts of the brain. Right. So if you are trying to fake it, chances are you're going to try to, be, to, try to do really badly in, in test A which then my mind says, okay, that person's done very badly in test A. That means that that type of brain dysfunction means I need to pull out tests Z and Q to validate that. If you then do really well in those two other ones, yet really badly in the first one, yeah. it doesn't actually make sense. It's sort of physically impossible. Right. So, but you wouldn't know that because you would just think, oh, I'll do badly here, I'll do badly there, I'll do well here, yeah. because you don't actually know what I'm looking for. But I know what I'm looking for, and I know that the pattern, if it doesn't actually logically make sense, you can't yeah. have damage here and then not have damage over here in certain cases. So yeah, I think that it's a bit easier to see. Lying and deception is a creative process, and when you're creating something that requires more brain cycles, CPU, or you want to call <laughs> it right, mm-hmm. and so you're going to be. Um, unnatural if you're if you're telling the truth then there's no effort required really because you're just speaking from experience and if you're trying to imitate a, a personality that's beyond another level of um the creative process because you have to basically you know like character acting like how the character acting yeah. and that's hard work you have to practice at that so yeah. if you're not if you're trying to deceive and personality this, the, ooh, this could be a long discussion um <laughs> okay so this is only my opinion so obviously, you know, in brackets, just take it, everyone, with a grain of salt. It's, it's only Mara's opinion. The interesting thing is, if someone actually really believes what they're saying in that moment, 
are they lying? So I would love to use a public figure that I don't actually want to name. Um, a couple of years ago, there was an, let's just say there was an athlete that became that was very well known and had all sorts of issues um, around drug testing. Now, that person appeared in a couple of interviews and categorically said, I did not take drugs. Now, in that moment, and you looked at that the person's face, they looked genuine. Some people may say they didn't, but they looked fairly genuine to me. That person, perhaps in that moment, looked genuine because they honestly had to believe what they were saying was true. Mm. So they built a, an artificial story in their mind about who they were, about what had happened in life. And so they could, they could inverted commas, genuinely say, I did not take drugs. Yeah. So, but everyone else around them knew what came out, of course, was that they had. Mm-hmm. So... It's a really interesting thing because if someone, yes, you're right, it takes less energy to and thinking power to speak honestly. But what if you can compartmentalize so beautifully that in that moment you are actually, in inverted commas, telling the truth from your perspective of what your truth in that moment is? That's why people can lie through their teeth and convince other people that they're telling the truth. I think it's that's they can only sustain that for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Then the cracks will show. Um, yeah. Yeah. Some people manage to sustain it for a, a fairly long period of time, but eventually something will happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I've met a lot of people like that. Obviously, that um, they. Yeah. I think <laughs> I had a, a funny story many years ago. Well, it's funny to me um, when I was. I think it was probably the first two weeks that I was as a neuropsychologist, and um, I had gone in to see someone who told me this horrific story about losing... I still remember this. I hate to think how many years ago. Uh, losing their entire family. They described to me uh, in this bushfire in Australia. And this guy was actually... Um, he was actually one of the, the person that had been um, put in prison uh, for manslaughter. And he told me all of this story about how uh, his entire family, he named these children. He was, it was very detailed. So I'm taking all these notes. And anyway, I went back to my, um, my boss and said, oh, you know, this is this situation. And he just started smiling and he said, oh, is that so-and-so? I said, yes. And he said, oh, he's been telling that story for ages. None of it's true. I'm like, what? But he was so... True, you know, honest, inverted commas, that I believed it. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot from that. And um, my husband, Stephen, will probably say I'm probably too suspicious. But I think over the years, you start to have, um, you know, someone said to me once that intuition is logic that moves very quickly in someone who has a lot of experience in those areas. And so I've always remembered that because I think for a lot of us, when we're experienced in something, you can, you know, make... Um, connections really quickly and yeah to someone then ask you but how do you know that you have to you have to think about it but I always say to people think about it and work backwards because there will be a flow chart it's just that that it's moved so quickly for you that you've got to the end and you haven't really sort of thought through exactly all the details of the the process yeah so yeah cool so um 
There used to be a channel on YouTube called Bombard's Body Language that was banned for whatever reason, but basically um, there was all sorts of traits that people can have. It was, I used to watch the channel, it's quite a fascinating channel. People's eye movements, mm-hmm. people's how the body sings, all this sort of stuff to, to back up what, what people are, if they actually believe what they're saying. So I guess you would have used kind of body language tools quite a lot when you're talking to people. Yeah, I had a... Um... Yes, so I so there's a lot of the there's oh gosh there's so many things as I said these days isn't there that, that we can call on to learn about um, micro expressions is is one of the major yeah. things that came out a few years ago. Um, one of the things that I was very fortunate um, and long story of how it happened, but I ended up going uh, being invited to the FBI training uh, area in Quantico in the states quite a few times actually and attended a lot of their lectures for a couple of weeks at a time. Um, and I learned a lot uh, through the FBI. I met a guy in Australia who was called over there for a case and we became friends and he in, in, was able to invite me over there because he was one of the instructors. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things around body language that we're learning more and more about. Um, and I, I think I think for me I tended to use that a lot. And I think that's why for me I used to get these little red flags when someone was not consistent mm-hmm. and sometimes the the measurement is actually over consistency rather than inconsistency right if you know what i mean because they're thinking too much about it and they're too rigid in their their expressions right i see i see interesting so these are these fbi lectures were, were mm-hmm. something that the public could go to or something no just... no 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 they were actually um they were actually all of the, the program course that the FBI agents in training go to. Right. And then you, there are people that are allowed to, they get invited to go and attend certain parts of the, that course. I'd love so, to go through something like that. It's fascinating oh, for it's me. You know? fantastic. I went to the, oh, this is no, this is another gruelling thing, probably too much information, and don't ask me specific because I won't say it on the radio um, after we've just heard about the, the mouse brain thing. Um, but they've got the FBI have got the thing called the body farm, which is looking at um, it's all the research in what happens for decomposition and various types of things to be able to help the forensic um, scientists work out what is happening. So that that's an amazing, incredible place to go and see. And that's all yeah. I'm going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit gruesome. Yeah. But necessary and very interesting. So, yeah. So I guess this this it must have been quite hard for you. You know, my first few days in the, in the laboratory were pretty hard for me because I wasn't used to like this stuff. You know, it's like. But then then I kind of get used to it. So basically, you, if you're dealing with these really psycho people, mm-hmm. it must have been hard the first few weeks and months. I imagine mm. meeting these kind of people and talking to them and. Do you remember the smells of the... Um, this is a matter of interest, sorry. I'll answer your Yeah, I do remember so, smells. Yeah. horrible. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's why I ask. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, they are. there are some smells that you never never forget. Um, oh, I think probably I was able to do what I did for as long as I did because I'm actually really good at compartmentalising. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, I also had arrogance and that got me into trouble a couple of times one time in particular um, where someone was able to grab me during an assessment um, because I wasn't quick enough and he'd managed to drag me 
across the because he was sitting across the table. That is, there's a there's a process of, of how it's all set up. You're always protected, um, but I was I was arrogant. I wasn't um, vigilant and and watching as I normally would later and, and had done before. And he managed to grab me. I had a, a coat on. Um, he grabbed me by the lapels, and before the other guards in the room were able to get to him, um, he'd actually pulled me over the the table. Now he didn't hurt me um, because the guards got, yeah. got. Let's just say they got to him and were very <laughs> enthusiastic in the way that uh, they subdued him, um, which caused all sorts of problems because I put a report in saying they used undue force. But anyway, oh, he probably with him or something. Uh, yeah. So that was a bit, you know, that and that was only purely my my fault, my my youth, um, and a bit of arrogance. And I think after that, you you get to learn what you do, what you don't do, and you 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 have to be able to not. You have to go in with almost like a, you know, the old expression tabula rasa, a, um, a blank blackboard or blank sheet, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, can't go in with any assumptions or anything. You just go in and you you do your assessment and you see you see what you see. So these are a lot of your um, assessments were done where the guy wasn't in handcuffs or when you were in the same room, mm-hmm. not like a glass bar or anything like that. Um, I've had two who were very very. Uh, they were big big profile cases um, in Australia. Um, the one that I've only ever seen him behind a glass barrier, which was probably a good idea <laughs> at the time. Annoying because you had to keep putting your, your, your tests through. It's like a, a bank teller thing, you know. Yeah. And they, all the post office here where you have to keep putting everything underneath that little round thing. And I don't know how you do it, but I always get things stuck in it. It's very annoying. Um, it was like that. But he, he was a very um, interesting guy, probably the true, um, I'd say, he's, well, is he a sociopath or a psychopath? And I know you'll probably ask me what the difference is. In um, yeah, I was about to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll go to that one. Um, but he's definitely a pathic something. Um, his name is Ivan Milat, and he he was the backpacker murderer in Australia. It was a huge case. He played all sorts of little games, big games. So it was good to see him behind behind glass. Um, he, he he was very difficult to assess. Took ages. Why was it difficult? Um, he played all sorts of games. Um, he'd start with the the charm game, and when that didn't work, uh, then he started to get to uh, the sexual innu- innuendos game. When that didn't work, he started with the intimidation, verbal intimidation, and then he escalated to physical intimidation. So oh, yeah, all sorts of stuff, you know, banging on the glass and making faces and going nuts um so each time he did that I'd, and could I'd, he see you yeah yeah no he's literally he's literally there we're like like um at the post office he's on one right, side see, i'm I on see. the other side we've got the little round thing underneath and how many, how many hours were you interacting with him for oh he took forever um he took over a week because each time he did that whenever he would act up i would call time out yeah which would get him more annoyed because he likes attention so the 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 best and worst thing you can do to him is actually say, you know what, I'm not playing this, I'm leaving. Right. So it, an assessment that normally might take five hours or so with a yeah. couple of breaks took me most of the week because I'd have to literally leave the prison and come back. Mm. Um, so it took a while. In Australia, they don't have a death penalty. No. Right. Because I guess the stakes would be even higher in America 
because yeah. there's it's a pr- even greater pressure yeah. on the defendant because of potential for being executed. Yeah, and you know, oh, the gosh, that takes us into all sorts of places, doesn't it, with people who have been wrongly accused and, gosh, all sorts of things going on there. Uh, not just there, but lots of other places too. Um, so the difference, I'm sure you want to ask yeah, me? Yeah. yeah, so these days, so before, many years ago, we used to just call everyone a sociopath, uh, sorry, a psychopath. Um, these days, there's a kind of a, a discrimination between, um, or a, a sort of sorting out between a sociopath that has similar um, um, s- symptoms, I suppose, or style, but it's most likely due to um, their, their social environment growing up. So neglect or, you know, violence, etc., etc. A psychopath, generally, and these are sort of very kind of um, big, uh, what's the word, loose um, dis- distinctions. A psychopath is someone that possibly is born with that personality and traits. Okay. So are, are both categories of people equally morally responsible for their actions? Mm. Generally. Mm-hmm. If you want to make a rule of thumb, yeah, yeah, but, yeah it's hard, but, isn't it? But, but then it's, uh, I guess, there's a, a sort of point where brain damage reduces moral responsibility, and that's yep. the, where the judge has to decide the punishments or what. The know. judge does. What a job! Yeah, it's not one I would like. So they have, in Australia, they have the jury system as well, like the UK. They do. Yep, they do. Very similar. It's based on the UK system. And do they have the same structure, like the magistrates and then the high court and mm-hmm. then all this sort of stuff? I'm reading, I'm reading a book right now. I'm trying to remember what it's called. The, uh, I forget what the name of it. Basically, it's, a, it's an anonymous, anonymous book about law in the UK. Um, oh, The Secret Barrister. I need oh, to finish yeah. reading it. Okay. Have you read it? No, I haven't read it. Um, it's, it shows you the pressure that lawyers are under mm. in sort of magistrates' courts and how people fall through the gaps just to the time pressures and, and the un, unrealistic expectations that lawyers have based, you know, based on getting a hundred sheets of stuff oh, to read in a certain amount of time and go in there and change people's lives, you know? Oh, and, know. And, and, and and the book's all about also that it could happen, happen to anybody. You could be falsely accused or just something could happen. You could end up in court, mm-hmm. in a magistrate's court, and you're in a system where there is a lot of imperfections and um, anyone anyone could, could end up in court. Something yeah. we have to be, have, we all have to be uh, ready for in a sense, or, or be aware of that can happen, whether it's jury duty or falsely accused, or you you get involved in a crime, mm. just through whatever circumstances, um, or even as a as an extraneous member of that, as a witness to a crime, oh, yeah. you know, or yeah. you know, yeah, no, life is uh, <laughs> full of navigating obstacles, isn't it? Gosh, yeah, yeah I, I always um, have a real soft spot for lawyers because having worked with with them for so many years um yeah it's a really really tough job really tough job and police as well police I really really admire I used to do a lot of work um, when I wasn't doing forensics I did a lot of trauma work with the um federal police and the ambulance service so debriefing traumatic uh, incidents which for their in their lives are every day um yeah I respect them enormous amount of respect. The police have a, a very very tough job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so you worked in this um, field for around eighteen years, and then you you got into the more corporate side of things. Mm, I started working part time 
in the uh, in the corporate world, I had this a bit of an epiphany um, in my thirties when I thought I don't want to turn fifty and to think all I've ever known is abnormality. Yeah. Even though I loved it, <laughs> it probably says something about me. Maybe. Um, so fascinating and it still is I've never quite let it go which I've been very fortunate in my life to be able to keep that and still do clinical assessments here and there Um, but I wanted to see what I could use my skills for with people who had everything going for them they had Mm. an intact brain had a lot of good brain but the only thing that was holding them back was fear So how could I use the techniques and the skills that I had and transfer those into helping people gain, you know, step into their potential when they've got everything going for them, as opposed to all the people that I'd spent all those years working with that had a lot going on for them that they'd never be, for a lot of them, not never be the same. Mm. You know? How does what you've done help people with fear? Um... Well, how would what have done? Um, I could answer that a lot of ways. I suppose I could. I'll, I'll answer it by the obvious one, which is in you know the last twenty five years. I've been Stephen and I have been working um, together on on developing heart styles, which is our our instrument to help people work out what's happening for them. And the four quadrants. That it's a very simple on the face of it a simple model that we're either working out of a a place of security which is what we will call above the line thinking and behavior and that would be around things like uh, courageous humility and uh, growth driven love for other people or we're working out of a place of insecurity and that tends to manifest itself from fear so it self limits us holds us back or we can try to deal with that fear by going into a bit of denial. Well, I think we always always do that anyway, don't we? But we can go into a more aggressive form of that, of I'm not going to let anyone beat me. Yeah. So I'm going to go into an aggressive form of that called ego-driven pride. So I'll compete with other people, I'll control everything, I'll be perfectionistic and striving. Yeah, I, can, I can sort of relate to that in this sort of entrepreneurial world mm-hmm. where if you're working on a product and you discover some so-called, I don't know, you call it competition or somebody's got similar ideas, you can become very defensive and angry, mm-hmm. like how dare they take my idea and then you, but you, that just puts a whole bunch of extra pressure on you yeah. it doesn't doesn't make you feel good at all, right? No, that's, so, a, that's a lovely point actually it's very good self-insight because I felt it <laughs> <laughs> well, so, okay, so what did that do for you then? Now you're looking back at that time, but at the time how does that manifest in, in you? It just feels horrible because usually I'm operating out of a place of um, peace and, and comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm just kind of doing what I enjoy, build building things. But uh, when you get into that, you know, anti-competitive mindset, it just I just don't like it at all. Um, it's, um, it's hard, isn't it? Because you, you tend to then. Did you find that you were always folk? Well, not always. Always is a big word. You spend t- en- emotional energy and mental energy focusing on what other people were doing yeah. and comparing yourself. Yeah. Comparison's horrible. I mean, Comparison's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Comparison is horrible. There's, 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 
it's like you're getting displeasure from someone else's pleasure in a sense yeah. it's just completely selfish right yeah and uh, useless emotional effort energy you know you should, you should be happy for people that are doing well you know even if it's taking share from you it's you know it's I mean the world's a big place there's space for people you know both be successful you know yeah. that's a lovely attitude Nikos we need more of that and then I could retire <laughs> <laughs> If the whole world was like that, I could go and lie on a beach in Bermuda. Yeah. I don't know why Bermuda. I've got this thing about Bermuda. Probably it's glorified beach or something. Relaxation. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't that be great? I like I like Elon Musk's attitude towards corporate things, where he has mm-hmm. a sort of very horizontal. I'm not. I don't actually know the guy. I've never been to Tesla or whatever. But he has a sort of very horizontal corporate structure and people. Um, if they're in meetings, then if they find the meeting boring and on point, not not fruitful, they can just leave, you know. But a lot mm. of times, corporate world, we're just trying to keep so-called impressions up, making people happy, and, and if it's just, just going to status quo. But I like the way um, Elon, he seems to um, just raw efficiency. Um, so I wonder how that transfers into their culture. I don't know. I'd love to. I'd mm, love to. Be interesting uh, to know. I'd it? love to go and interview some people there. Because efficiency, you know, to be able to balance out an effective culture would be that incredible efficiency, but also an op- an openness and transparency and an ability to be authentic in in that same environment. If you've got a combination of those two things, that that is an amazing environment. Mm. It, it breeds innovation, doesn't it? It breeds uh, cooperation. Mm. It breeds teamwork. And what I like about what Elon Musk is he seems to be like a human maximalist, which is to basically... Mm-hmm. Have you heard that term. expression? No, I haven't. That's an interesting term. I first heard it from an interview with Mark Nadal, who's a sort of um, techie, techie guy, but mm. he's got sort of like activist traits. But um, Elon Musk, he gave away all the patents for his Tesla cars to the world. So that was very noble of him. Mm. Um um, I'm not too sure about his neuro neurolace stuff. It kind of freaks me out a little bit, um, but he's got no sort of noble intentions with that because he wants to sort of interface with AI in a higher bandwidth to sort of prevent the the doomsday scenario. But uh, it scares me um, interfacing with computers in that biological way. But anyway, mm. uh, that could be another podcast. I think that'd be very interesting. Not with me, because I've got no idea. I don't think Elon's going to come on my podcast anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> you never know. If you don't ask, you know. Maybe I get to episode 1000 or something like that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so Maybe you can put the invitation out there to him. So you, you've got a really unique... This this, this Heart Styles thing you, you made of your husband, you've got an amazing background to pull off. You know, a lot of people... There's a lot of sort of self-made, self-proclaimed gurus out there that have these five-step processes to success, and it drives me nuts. People going on on YouTube and I'm this guru and buy this course, but they, they look at that. I mean, how can a twenty-year-old talk about life experiences, right? And talk about their <laughs> depends on the twenty-year-old. Uh, it, it, this... it depends on the twenty-year-old. Some twenty-year-olds, not often. But it is. Some, but you've got actually a, you've got a product you've developed through. You know, you're pretty much one of the top neuropsychologist in Australia so that's I really was. yeah it was a long time ago <laughs> so it must be fascinating for your clients to, to to learn from you guys oh well I think that I think our thing 
um, is, and this came from both Stephen and I from different directions. For Stephen, he is really good at explaining really complex things in a simple way. And that comes from him, um, because I think he's already said that he's, he's dyslexic. And so for him, he needed to always think about taking in information and then putting it out in a way that was meaningful. For me, I never ever had a thing about um, people and being able to be, to get to the heart of people, even from a, a young age. And I always, when, even through my, my clinical career, I always tried to be really, really simple and um, just break down complex information. Um, I used to call it the white coat syndrome, which was uh, that, you know, in the medical world, a lot of times people get their identity out of their position. I mean, it happens everywhere in the world, but I'm speaking about a particular time in my life with that. And, you know, I joke that I was like that when I was young too. I was pretty arrogant and, you know, used to have your white coat on and you'd walk along the hallways of the hospital making sure that it flapped just in a particular angle as you walked past just to make sure everyone knew that you were there in your white coat and, oh, she's coming down the hallway. So there's a bit of all of that. Um, That's not how you dress when you're talking to these psychopaths. <laughs> with a white coat? Yeah. No. <laughs> get pretty messy with stuff that goes on. No. No, 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 you dress in a very particular way, very down, dressed down. Um, funnily enough, I used to dress down so much that, and even in court, that one day a friend of mine who was uh, in the public prosecutor's office, he was a policeman, <laughs> I was in my corporate gear, sorry, I've gone off tangent, I was in my corporate gear and I was in this like power suit, I still remember, it was a little red miniskirt and a, 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 a top, a, a coat, and I was running or I had my makeup on I was in between um, running to some client meeting and he stopped me and we were just talking away well I saw him actually and stopped him and he just looked at me and he always used to call me it's very Australian call me mate you know mate what the hell has happened to you well, what do you mean because of course then it, he'd never seen me look like that because normally you know I had my hair pulled slicked back I had these glasses on I was always in drab clothes to make myself um, not look uh, particularly interesting. Mm. Yeah, but, you know, then I had the, the makeup and the lippy on and the all of that it was quite funny, actually. These cookies are so good, by the way. Oh, good. I wish I could say Just I made, made the them. people out. But I didn't. But you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> they are store-bought, everyone. I can't even give you the name of the, the wonderful label because I don't Just to make everybody hungry that's listening to this podcast. Oh, right. <laughs> well, guilty. probably just as well because they probably weren't hungry when we started about the mice and the slices. So mm -hmm. now at least they've got somewhere with a bit of food. Um, right. And I've just gone so much off topic that I've forgotten. What I've I was forgotten what I was talking about as well. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you, you, How okay, terrible. So you were dressing down to meet these people. Yes, but that wasn't actually, that was a side issue. So is there, a, I guess there's... If you're interviewing male psychopaths, I guess most of them are male, right? Cause yeah, there was more of a proponent, in my experience. Is it being a female in your industry easier? Because maybe the males are they've got less of a guard up. Uh, you could argue both ways. Um, I did find, well, yes and no, I'll say. Sorry, I've got so many stories in my head, so mm -hmm. I will not. I will just say yes and no. Okay, okay. Cool, so... Trying to bring us 
together what we did with, with Stephen. So you you've recently launched this book coming that's coming out soon, right? It's, um... Yes, um, it's called Above the Line: mm-hmm. Leading, Living, and Leading with Heart. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes out. It's by Harper. It's um, published by Harper Collins, and it's coming out in the US on the seventh of January, and in the UK on the. 20, 20th of January, I think. My, my late Christmas present. Yeah, yeah, very much, yes. I think all of our friends and pretty much everyone we know <laughs> know what they're going to get for Christmas, well, post-Christmas anyway, this book. Yes, so that's been interesting. Never thought I'd um, co-author a book, but there we go. Mm-hmm. So what's next for free for you, New Stephen? For us? Uh, well, I think next year we'll be fairly busy with the book promotions mm-hmm. um, and probably um, some consulting work in, in amongst all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not lying on a beach in Bermuda, I don't think. But maybe that one day will come. Mm-hmm. And what's the one? What's the best way for people to get in touch with you, you both again? Um, probably through, I guess we can be reached on our um, through the website, um, which is heartstyles dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Stephen and I both have emails: uh, mara dot at heartstyles dot com, Stephen dot at heartstyles dot com. Okay. Okay. Well, it's um. It's great to meet you both and uh, look forward to seeing uh, what happens next because you've got some pretty interesting clients and um, fascinating background now that I get to hear from you personally, you know, in, in detail. So, um, Thank you, Nikos. Thanks, thanks for, for having me, thanks having me for, on your yeah, show. Thanks. Anything else you want to share with our audience? Oh, lots of things, but <laughs> <laughs> what can we say? Oh, I know. I'll say that we are all an and. A-N-D. And to have compassion for ourselves that in one minute we can be the best of ourselves and the next minute we can devolve into our insecure selves and go and wreak havoc on other people and ourselves in our lives and wish we hadn't. Um, But we are both of those things. And it's a matter of, um, I guess, working out what needs to happen for me to not be the best of me and what needs to happen for me to be the best of me, but the best of me is always there. Great. Ready. Okay. Okay, well, uh, thank you, my listener, for tuning in to this show with Mara Klimek. Um Fascinating episode, and um, thank you for your time. Thank you. And we'll see you all again shortly on Influencers Cafe. This is Nikos signing off. Bye-bye.